Hello, my name is Daniel Marino, and this is the Motion Martial Arts Podcast. So joining us today is my friend Andrew O'Brien. He's from the Boston area, and I first met Andrew years ago when we were competing in tournaments together. Um, he also is comes from a Tung Sudo background, but over the last few years, he's also started cross-training in a second style of karate called Uechiru. Uechiru is an Okinawan style of karate, and it's very, very different from Tung Sudo, so I thought it would be great to get Andrew on the show just to kind of talk about the differences in his experiences in these two styles. Cover a lot of other topics, and it was a really fun conversation, but hope you enjoy all right, cool. Thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for the invite. I'm excited. Yeah. No. So um, today I wanted to talk about so a little bit of background, guys. This is my friend, Andrew O'Brien. Um, we first met each other years and years ago, competing in tournaments together. We both come from a Tung Sudo background. He um, more recently has taken up a, a second style of karate called Uechiru. That's right. Very different from Tung Sudo. That's a lot of what I want to talk about today, you know, kind of compare and contrast his experiences training in both arts. But um, anyway, man, you also are a teacher, too. You've been a teacher for a while now, too. So it's interesting. Both, you know, both we're both kind of lifelong practitioners, but we also both teach Tung Sudo. Right. All good stuff to talk about. But yeah, man. Sweet. Yeah. And I do the academic thing too, if that's of interest. So I teach yeah. language and, literature yeah. and writing. <laughs> so cool. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds um, great. So how, how long have you been doing Oichiru now? <laughs> For Oichi, it's about six years. I started 2015 ish, 2016 ish. Yep. And uh, it was right around, it was actually right around when I got married. So we're we're coming up on another anniversary in January or February for that. Cool. Yeah, you know, I find it really interesting too because you know we and we've had this conversation I think in the past that I always call Tung Sudo like the Frankenstein style of karate, <laughs> where it's just like it's such a and you know it can make Tung Sudo a little bit weird sometimes yep. too, but I also think it makes it really cool is that it has all of these influences, you know, so Tung Sudo, you know, there were, as far as I can tell, there were, you know, were indigenous, you know, style, there was an indigenous style of kicking in Korea. And that's definitely a part of, of Tung Sudo. But then, you know, big part piece of the puzzle is that you had Koreans who studied Japanese karate, a lot of the early Taekwondo guys, you know, in the Mudokwan, yep. through a lot of Tung Sudo lineage, you know, there isn't a direct connection to Shotokan. But one way or another, there were a lot of people in Korea, in, you know, imperial era, imperial, uh, imperial Japan, when, in the, during the era when, when imperial Japan occupied Korea, there were a lot of martial artists who had, who had black belts and Shotokan, you know, and stuff. Then they were the founders of a lot of the original Kwans. So you had that, you had a very strong influence from Japanese karate and Tung Sudo. Yep. And then karate, of course, originally came from Okinawa, right? So you mm -hmm. consider Tung Sudo Kaiwa part of the whole, the, the Shurite part of the karate family tree. And then, of course, it comes to the United States. Most Tung Sudo is practiced in the United States. 
nowadays very very little of it is found in Korea from what mm-hmm. I understand. So that's why I say that I always call it the Frankenstein style of karate. Where it's just all over the board, you know, from Okinawa to Japan to Korea to the United States. But right. you practicing Uechiru, I thought was really interesting because, you know, it's an Okinawan style of karate. It comes from the Naha part of the family tree. For anybody listening who doesn't know what that is, you know, essentially they're the, the two main like lineages of karate or you could call maybe, maybe styles or of karate are shuri and naha and those are cities in okinawa and those are terms used going back a really long time that some of the earliest writings we have on karate those were um that was a distinction that was made between different you know ways of practicing karate you had shurite and nahate but anyway man yeah well tell me a little bit about uechiru <laughs> Yeah. So um, to, to give context in regard to Tongsudo being a Frankenstein art, one of my teachers did some Shotokan and he said, basically, Shotokan's all about speed of transition. Tongsudo is all about point of impact power. And you can see that reflected in how we pay more attention to torquing the hip and really driving from the legs in a way that Shotokan practitioners don't. Yeah. And those kind of long stances and that emphasis on point of impact power you you see that reflected in the distancing for a lot of the application even if you look at like uh ian's stuff and the way that he breaks down like pyongyang chodan you have the long stances yeah um but by way of contrast weichi is pretty much all short stances like the the first time you do a leaning stance um zenkotsudachi in japanese but um chase for us i believe the first time you actually do one of those it's in the fifth kata and there are only eight in the style so the emphasis for weichi is much more on short stances the uh, the primary stance is called a Sanchin stance, which is also the name of the first kata. More of a training exercise than like a fight syllabary, although there is, you know, there's a breakdown in Bunkai for it. Sure. But um, so that, that focus on short stances, um, on internal power, the way that you make the stance, you have the feet side by side parallel and about shoulder width almost like our chumbi or ready for action position and then you have the front foot turned at about 30 degrees internally rotated and the goal is to create this kind of torque this spiraling energy and structure up through the body Mm -hmm. so if you do that you create a pretty good amount of internal power, internal structure. And then that allows you to root and focus on the hands. And then there's a lot of circular blocking yeah. and linear, you know, strong striking, maybe with alternative surfaces like uh, fingertip strikes, uh, palm strikes, single knuckle strikes, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Uechiru um, is a kind of. It- and I know it always depends on where, you, what part of the world you live in, you know, different sure. styles are going to be popular, different places. You know, I don't know. You live up in Massachusetts. I don't know if Uechiru is a big 
community up there but it's it's a style that a lot of people i think often haven't heard about it's it's definitely one of the more obscure styles of karate and just for anybody listening maybe you know i'd say that when i would would watch you know like videos of of your teacher <clears throat> since a chip quimby he um to my, when I would watch it, to my eye, it looks a lot like Gojiru. And I've heard, you know, before Weichiru is considered kind of a related style to Gojiru, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things. Gojiru is considered kind of like the main style to come out of that Nahate lineage. <clears throat> right. You know, definitely one of the biggest styles out there, but not quite as big as the, you know, the, the Shotokan derived Shurite style. Right some of the best right. in the world you know it's funny you mentioned the long stances too because um <laughs> you know they really weren't they they're really a, a relatively recent addition even to shurite and that part of karate you know i i remember i've i've read a lot of books you know in funakoshi's the earliest photographs we have of Ichin funakoshi the founder of shotokan <laughs> demonstrating the forms you know he's doing them a lot more of like a old school Okinawan style and then photos that you have of him later in his life you know the stances have gotten longer and have gotten a bit deeper right and, you know it was just a development from the art you know when you start applying things because I do a lot of the as Ian Abernethy likes to call it the kata based sparring or you could call it clinch fighting but <laughs> and you did a little bit of it with me at my school just you know just just uh, uh just last week yep Yep. But, uh, and I like your way of breaking it down, and I'm going to steal a little bit from us. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, it was really nice having you out. But um, yeah. yeah, it was fun. But yeah, once you start applying things, you know, the long stances, in my opinion, very rarely make much sense. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's just not a natural position to have. Right. And you will naturally, once you grab a hold of each other and you start doing a little bit of standing, standing grappling with strikes, takedowns, and joint locks you know you're going to naturally start to shorten up those stances a bit to make it a more natural more functional position for you yeah i would i would just want to jump in and clarify when i say long stances i don't i don't so much mean like the tournament like can i swear mm -hmm. i don't mean like tournament ass to grass like you're basically doing an athletic squat instead yeah. of like a horse stance sure. um what what i really mean is the length for Sanchen's stance is what we call heel-toe alignment. So the mm -hmm. back foot, big toe is on the same horizontal line as the front foot heel. Yeah. So it's it's like an itty-bitty stance as opposed to uh, the Weichi leaning stance, which is maybe twice a regular walking stride for you, probably even less, honestly. Yeah, um, and that was so, that's the longer one of the longer stances that you guys practice. The longer exactly, stances. exactly. So long, long is relative there. Like, yep. what a Tongsudo practitioner thinks of as a long stance would be way too, way too long, way too overcommitted for Weichi. Sure. Yeah, no, I got you, man. And you know, and sometimes this the long stances get out of hand, don't they? You know, because one of the th and this is one of the things about, in my opinion, with forms, kata, hyung, 
when they get divorced from application, you start to modify the movements themselves. And in my opinion, in odd, sometimes you start to modify them in odd ways, you know, because yeah. what's the point of the super long stances we see in competition or stuff like that? It does make it harder. Right? Yep. <laughs> you know? yep. It's like not more functional, but it does make it more <laughs> difficult just straight up to even physically do that stance. Right. You know? It's athletically so, impressive. Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's one of those things where I don't know, aesthetically, not really something that I like very much, you know, and I come from tungsten background, of course, but whenever we use, you know, these, these terms, these styles, it's always mm -hmm. an umbrella, right? You know, there's a lot sure. of different ways that tungsten is practiced. My teacher actually, you know, we come from, of course, you know, he, he was originally, his original style was Tung Sudo. He still taught Tung Sudo, you know, his entire his entire career. But he um he actually has a good amount of experience in, in Shotokan as well. You know, he spent time in Japan. He's trained with some very high level Shotokan practitioners. There was a local guy in Philadelphia named John McClary that he trained with, who was a pretty, you know, um decorated competitor and you know, from way back in the day. So I can always consider that a part of what I do as well, where, you know, we kind of have that influence as well, where he, he's, he's done. And it's also interesting, too, because you're talking about, like, comparison between Shotokan and Tung Sudo. You know, it's like what I always found cool about that is if you watch Shotokan from the 1950s and then you watch Tung Sudo from the 1950s, I felt like you see it immediately where you're like, oh, <laughs> I can see the relation here. But then yes. there was a separate evolution that occurred where both styles developed in their own way independently from there. Right. It's kind of interesting. You know, if you go, if I think of, you know, like Shotokan karate greats, you know, one of my favorites is, is Mikio Yahara. For mm -hmm. anybody familiar with him, he was, you know, you know, one of the top, top competitors, top guys in the, in the Shotokan karate scene in the seventies and eighties. And he, um, he actually still teaches today. Still is really impressive. But anyway, you compare Yahara with, um, you know, like videos of H.C. Huang, who's the son of the founder of our style, Tung Sudo Murakwam, Huang Ki. If you see videos of him from like the 90s or the early 2000s, you know, both very sharp, very refined, very physically impressive technique, but also very, just very different. And um yeah, it's cool. It's cool to see the separate evolution and to see, you know, both get to come to with a lot of similar conclusions, but also different stylistic flavor that kind of manifests itself in there. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the idea of, uh, have you heard of like linguistic shit or uh, anything along those lines? Don't think so. Huh. Cool. The idea basically is just that a word changes in its meaning over time. Um, an example is like enchanted, maybe yeah. originally meant literally put under a spell. Yeah. And now it means something like captivated or or really interested, you know? Yeah. yeah but yeah. but you, you see that same sort of progression and shift as people uh, we were talking about specialization when when I was at your dojong, but as people specialize and it becomes more and more about the aesthetic and how that aesthetic distinguishes this art 
from that other art which does stuff totally differently bordering on wrong yeah. you know like <laughs> you start to see that change over time yeah yeah i know and it, it is it is really interesting too because i think it's specifically coming from the korean karate side of things and i think this is true of tung sudo definitely taekwondo you know there's even competition between different arts right so i i think that's a good explanation in some extent to the 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 focus on kicking that you see in tung sudo and taekwondo and that you know it's kind of flashy it's kind of interesting it gets people's attention it's a way of setting your style apart from other mm -hmm. styles right it's the kind of thing you want to do at a big demonstration or something like that to wow the crowd and get people in your school you know your your right. jump spinning kicks and stuff like that Yep. And as much as many people might push back against that, because some people do, of course, claim that, you know, the Korean style of kicking has its origins in Taekyeon or an older, you know, Korean martial arts, which may or may not be true. I, I'm, I'm not an authority on, on that subject, but right, right. I think sometimes people tend to underestimate more you know, practical and immediate explanations to things like that, which is that in, you know, the, the 70s, there were a lot of martial arts instructors, you know, moving to Western countries and starting their schools and stuff like that. And they, um, you know, they were given demonstrations and stuff. Like they were trying to capture people's attention. And that's a really easy way to do so, you know. Yep, totally. But anyway, man, let's talk a little bit specifically. So, you know, you know, we've been talking a little bit about body mechanics here, you know, but what about more? And I understand this, obviously, as you know, it's going to vary a lot from teacher to teacher, just like any other style. But like the specifics of Uechi training, what would you say are some key differences between in Tung Sudo? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I know some Tung Sudo stylists, like my teachers, particularly um, who trained during the 70s, they did a lot of hard body conditioning where you're uh, driving your fingers into like a vase full of sand or you're you're doing arm pounding and uh with an with an emphasis on like forging the bone so that you can strike um with greater integrity on the impact surface that sort of stuff yeah um, as a kid i really didn't do any of that in tong sudo and as an adult, uh, still very little. It just wasn't emphasized anymore. But Weichi has a ton of emphasis on um, both giving and receiving impact in formal drills so that you're working on your striking surfaces and you're working on some of the more common blocking areas like uh, the radius and the ulna and the forearm. We do a lot of... Um, outside quad outside calf and uh we're we're kicking each other and you can you know you can you can hear the thump and feel it through the floor when two people who are well conditioned are going after each other yeah yeah so something is considered a little bit of a feature of the style that and i've heard of this before and of course the body conditioning you know is a big part of it and yeah I, I, and similar to you i never i never did it when i was growing up but i always heard about stuff like that in tongue sudo you know? right right like you now i there always was a makiwara in the school when i was younger and so mm -hmm. i'd hear about the like, conditioning that people would do that 
but yeah, never really got, you know, I, I think we came from a generation middle of, I started training in 2000, which was probably close to when you, you would have started, right? Yeah. 98, I think, but yeah. Yep. And, um, it was just very sport based, you know, it, it was that there was a lot of other stuff that we did, but mm-hmm. we definitely were the most intensive part of the training was, you know, preparation for competition of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. We did a lot of point, you know, with sparring, it was just point fighting, you know, and we mm-hmm. did a lot of forms and, and my teacher having that Shotokan background as well, you know, we would do a lot of work with body mechanics and stuff like that too. But, yeah. um, you know, in terms of conditioning or anything like it was, it was fairly minimal, you know, we would just hit pads and that was pretty much it. Yeah. You know, and it's something I think some people really, you know, so, but there's some, when I say we just hit pads, I don't want to be too dismissive of it. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's important because we would hit them without gloves. You know what I mean? You yep. know, and um, that is something I've done. And it's very common throughout karate for, you know, like I've, I've, I've hit things without gloves my whole life, you know, and I do think that's an important, that is an important and a very practical thing to do in your training. And even today, to tell you the truth, I honestly, cause I do a lot of bag work in my own training. Yep. I, I try to like force myself to put on the gu- the gloves when I hit the bag more often, just because I, I want to be a little bit more um, long-term about my health with it, yeah. you know? Yeah, because I hit the bag a lot. You know, it's a regular part of you know, it's something I do almost every day in my training. Mm-hmm. I try to keep it like 50 50 where like half the time I'll wear gloves. But I do think, you know, if you're training to if you have, if you have some kind of self-defense focus in your practice, you know, it is important that you do that. You know, you're not going to be wearing a glove if you ever really need to need to hit someone. And um, it is different. You know, it's surprising how much it changes the way that you impact when you wear a glove, you know? Yes. Even just that, that wrist stability that the glove gives you allows you to get away with more sure. like uh, slightly open fist or any of that. Yeah. And you also kind of hit, I, I feel like when I'm wearing the glove, I'm hitting more. I'm not quite, I'm off. It's not, you, you can, and I try to be very careful about these things, but it's a lot easier not to quite, not to really form your fist correctly or to hit with the wrong part of your fist, maybe more like the small knuckles that are lower. Yes. And stuff like that. There's just all kinds yep. of things that, you know, you know, you want to use any kind of equipment to its greatest advantage, right? When you want, <laughs> you want to, you want to use the glove to give you the protection without it compromising your form. But it's often hard to do that, you know? Anyway, yeah. I, I think a lot of them, you talk to a lot of boxers, kickboxers, people like that, they'll swear that if you hit things barehanded, you know, it's like you'll mess up your hands. But I'm a little bit skeptical of that because it's such a, something everybody does in karate, you know what I mean? Yep. And it's something yep. you definitely can be dumb about it. You can, um, you know, you don't want to be causing excessive pain and injury when you're hitting and you want to listen to your body. Pain is important information. It's your body trying to tell you something. But at the same time, you know, I can I can wail away on a heavy bag, you know, which I know is still different than Makiwara. It's not a not hard not a hard striking surface, but I can wear wail away on a heavy bag for like a, a solid hour, and my hands don't ache; they feel fine, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I would say even with Makiwara, with with any of these 
training modalities where you're trying to toughen up the body, you're trying to enter into this process. Like my boss, uh, Sensei Chip, does some every day, yeah. you know, and you, you shake his hands and you feel the calluses and you look at his knuckles and you can see sort of that like Ip Man sunken knuckle calloused, you know, yeah. like it, it, it's a tool, it's a weapon. Sure. And uh, it's it's that consistency over time, not necessarily the intensity of each training bout itself. Yeah. So, yeah, what you're saying makes total sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, and, you know, we <laughs> and I suspect that you know, something that you appreciate about it, too, this move mm-hmm. from this to this Okinawan style is the connection that it has to Cobra Kai. <laughs> Definitely. Right. Because it has been confirmed that Cobra Kai is Kung <laughs> Sudo. <laughs> I was just, so excited when I read that. I, like, I know. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. It's, it's been confirmed that, t- that Tung Sudo is supposed to, is what is the basis for Cobra Kai. And you and, always you know, suspected, but yeah, and yeah, you know, I guess it's supposed to be like Gojuru. Yes, and even Chojin Miyagi was. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but founder of Goju. Yep. Uh, Miyagi was it? I think it was Higo. I think it was his teacher, right? Oh no! Yeah, Higoona. Higoona was the founder of Goju, but Miyagi was, you know, he's like the the, the he was a great popularizer. Of the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah, but like, <laughs> that yeah that name is drawn from one of the early you know the fathers of the style for sure. But and I you know all right we're kind of going out on a limb here a little mm. bit, but you know I I I and we talked about it a little bit at my school the other day. I absolutely love the show Cobra Kai. I like mm-hmm. the original Karate Kid movie too a little bit. The second Karate Kid movie. The third one, not as much, and you know, you just don't even <laughs> want to d- don't even mention the next Karate Kid. That's yeah, yeah, not, not even worth <laughs> acknowledging. But something that I always found that I find that I really appreciated as a, I appreciate about the show Cobra Kai specifically is that it kind of it's like a love letter to to people that practice martial arts their whole lives. Yeah. You know, like it really yeah. gets a lot of the things that people that grew up doing this stuff continue to appreciate as adults. And, um, you know, I don't know, you tell me if there's any truth to this, but I, I think that, uh, and I, it was present in the original Karate Kid movie as well, kind of this idea that Tung Sudo, I think, being a basis for Cobra Kai makes a lot of sense because it was like we were talking about before, the Frankenstein style and the way that it's mostly in the United States too. Tung Sudo, in my opinion, is a very good example of like the um, what's become like the American expression of karate. Hmm. And I think especially back in the day, no, because this is these are things these are things that I've that I always want to know more about. But you know, Tung Sudo, of course, changed a lot. If you go back and watch old footage of the Mudaquan, or if you go back and read Wang Ki's writing, and then I compare that to kind of the Tung Sudo that I grew up doing, it was a lot more tournament-based. Mm-hmm. had an emphasis a lot on sparring and fighting and stuff like that. It, it's, it's, you can, you can see how there was an evolution there. You know, I'm not saying that evolution didn't occur 
as well in Asia. It did, of course, you know, especially in Japan with the right. Shotokan guys. I mean, you know, competition was a very, very big part of that scene as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you know, when you look at the, this this contrast that they create in Cobra Kai and the original Karate Kid movies, that you have like the hard stock Cobra Kai style, and then you have like a softer Miyagi Do style, and so you had you know, like the and you know one of them being Cobra Kai in the original movies was not explicitly Tung Sudo, but Japanese or Korean style karate, and then Okinawan karate. Do you see any kind of truth to that in your experience? I definitely do. And the original name of Weichi, right? So Weichiru is the name of the founder of the style, the guy who brought it to Okinawa um, was Weichi. And then Ryu just means like type or style. Um, But before his students changed it, to the name Weichiru, it was known as Hongai Noon. Mm-hmm. And that name meant half hard, half soft. Interesting. And yeah, uh, the this this is getting into a little bit the the historical, you know, like you can read into anything and make it fit with the right lens, but yeah, the presentations for the style are dragon, tiger, and crane. And you have a lot of those soft elements where you know you're you're the dragon's whipping tail or you're the crane's beating wings uh and we also have the tiger's claws but there is a lot of there is a lot of circular movement especially on the blocks and then there's a lot of um hard linear strong movement on the strikes and almost any time you enter into a new position in the kata, um, as opposed to Tongsudo, where we have usually one move per stance, and like, okay, low block, leaning stance, next move, up, oh, and we step into center punch, leaning stance, you know? Yeah. With Weichi, we often step into a stance, perform a block as we're moving, mm-hmm. and then execute one, two, three strikes in place. Interesting. Yeah. So there's there's this emphasis on rooting. There's this emphasis on um, pairing the hard and the soft, kind of kind of like they would talk about in Miyagi Do in Cobra yeah. Kai. Yeah. <laughs> but and would you say and in the Weichi community because mm-hmm. of course all styles are developing. Yep. Over time, but. In comparison, you would agree with the Tungsudo you grew up doing that there was very, there was that concentration on competition. Oh yeah, for sure. Right. That's and, that's how all my instructors sort of tested themselves and proved themselves, and that's what yep. they taught us. Yeah. Sure, yeah. But would you say it's not quite as prevalent or not as quite as present in Weichiru? The focus, the importance that's placed on on competition. Oh, yes. I, yeah, I totally agree with that. Okay. There is competition, but sure. generally the style is 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 not as flashy, mm-hmm. and so Weichika tend not to do as well in tournaments when they're up against other styles. Mm-hmm. Um, the the framing that I've heard is 
this is self-defense, you know, and I, I think it can be useful for that. But uh, yeah, that, you know, that's that's the common framing. This is not tournament. It's not sexy. It's not meant to be impressive looking. Mm-hmm. It's meant to do something. Sure. Yeah. You know, and you, you know, it was something again to go back to Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like from the beginning that you know like the the whole original movie was kind of the the build up going to the tournament at the end mm, yes mr miyagi's whole thing why he tells he tells daniel to just do the one tournament and then not and then to not do another one after that right you know what i mean yep, like yep. So, and and to tell you the truth you know this is again something i appreciate about that original movie as well as the show it's like this is actually supported in the historical record you know it's like in the 1950s, when you had, you know, like tournament karate, like just just emerging, like, you know, it was mm. just starting to become a thing. And then you had the older generation of karate teachers and practitioners who a lot of them were, you know, not really about it at all. And, yeah. you know, I'll be honest with you, man, I think that the the tournament competition stuff like that that that, the kind of that kind of stuff that i did a lot of we both did a lot of growing up i really appreciate you know i think especially for young people you know sports are good for you know they teach you really good lessons you know it's something that um i'm really glad because i'm not an athletic person at all i come from a family of very unathletic people (laughs) Mm -hmm. karate is the only athletic thing that you know, I've ever done. And, you know, the funny thing is when I was a kid, like I didn't even really consider it a sport. I was like, this is a martial art. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> At the end of the day, like through, through stealth, you know, I got some athletic experience through karate and yeah. I appreciate it. You know, I, I do think that it, it was a very good part of, you know, with all the different ways that my training has developed and my teaching has developed over time. It's, when I look back at it, it's a lot of the, in a lot of ways, it's very, very different from the tongue sudo that I grew up doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I've tried to, you know, it's the shuhari, you know, process yeah. is that I've tried to take the good things and, you know, and, and abandon the bad things and create, you know, and, 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 um, bring in new influences from people like Ian, things like that. And also just from, and Rory Miller, somebody else I know that you're familiar with. Love him. And also just modern combat sports, stuff like that, looking at what, you know, fighting looks like and trying to, you know, trying to make up my own practice and my own teaching more realistic. You know, these are all things that, in my opinion, are positive, you know, things that we should be doing to help us to grow in the art. However, you know, when I go back and look at it, as much as I can sometimes be critical of point fighting because it, cre- it can create some bad habits and it's a very, it's a very restrictive rule set, right? So we're talking about how this is for self-defense. It's not for competition. There is a lot of truth to that in that, you know, especially with something like point fight. I think you, if you look at the, obviously the prime example is something like MMA, right? You know, MMA and the old, the old like the marketing line they used to have for the UFC was as real as it gets, which I think was a really good one, right? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's still a sport. There still are rules. It's still a yep. something. But all things considered, you know, like it's a sport where you can punch, kick, grapple, right? You can take mm-hmm. them to the ground and submit them. You know, it was it's it's pretty damn close to. I'm, 
you know, we can go off on a tangent with all of that when you want to talk about self-defense, including defense against multiple attackers, defense against armed attackers and all this stuff. Like, yeah. of course, it, it still is a sport, but it's very, it's a very, very light, a very light, lightly restricted compared to, especially compared to something like point fighting, right? right. Where point fighting is so highly restricted. I mean, the rules really confine you so much where you're really only able to do very specific things so you'll get very good at those things but there's massive holes in your skill set that you have to at least be aware of in my opinion if you want to practice in a more functional way all that said though all the criticisms i think are totally valid for making like point fighting the focus of your training i still think that it's a very it was very valuable in my practice, especially when I was growing up and I really appreciate doing it because at least it was real to some extent, as in that there was real resistance, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it wasn't compliant. You know, you had to hit with that technique and against someone who was not just letting you do it. Right. You know, like I appreciate that, you know, yeah, it's a it's a proving ground on its own. Any sort of competition or sport would do the same thing to some degree. Yeah, yeah. We would. I think we would both agree there's something special about martial arts generally. Yeah, but it it has to be paired with an understanding of this is the game we're playing right now. This is the context for it. Yeah, and you can't jump from football into soccer and expect to be as good as you were at that other thing (laughs) yeah yeah, the analogy i always really liked with that was like a race car driver Mm -hmm. right that you want to think that like you know point fighting or you could even consider like mma a similar thing like that's like a, a combat sport is like driving a race car right yeah Whereas self-defense is like just normal driving, right? You know? Yeah. It's like if you teach a 16-year-old kid just to drive, right? You're going right. to train them in a very different way than you would a race car driver, right? But they yeah. are essentially doing the same thing, which is fighting, right? You know, yep. at the end of the day. So. It's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> it's, some, it's something that I think that is that Rory Miller's work in particular is great for this, which is just understanding context. Right. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Cause you know, I'm so, and I know you're familiar with the practical karate, I know what they call online, the practical karate movement. Yep. Ian Abernathy being a very, very, you know, prominent person in that community, but there's a whole group of people where it's based often a lot on, applications from the forms right but it's just this entire idea of taking karate and making it practical which to me means it's good for your health right and it's Mm -hmm. good for its practical use which is defense against a criminal attack and i'm all about it right you know i would consider that pretty much you know the focus of what i do now like i'm not i i still teach my kid the kids in my school to do point fighting like I did when I was young, but for adults, I'm not like training them for the ring or kickboxing or MMA or anything like that. You know, we kind of have more of like a kick, uh, more of a combat sport 
aspect to the way that we spar. But ultimately, if there's something I feel I'm preparing my students for, it's I want, I want, first of all, the training to just be a healthy part of their lifestyle, right? Something that's good for them mentally and physically. And secondly, I'd like, you know, I, I want them to be getting some skills that, that, that could help them if they ever, you know, God forbid, were, were involved in a criminal attack. Right. And I do think that um, there's a lot of value to having this kind of approach to your training. But <laughs> you have to be careful with this, though, because it's very easy with things like self-defense to move into the, an area where it's totally theoretical. True. And that's not good for your training. Like one of the things that competition is great for, you know, regardless of its shortfallings, right? Even with something like point fighting, right? It is, there is real resistance involved there, right? So you have right. to make it really work against someone who's not letting you. The problem with self-defense a lot of the time is because you know, you never are actually criminally attacking each other. It's always this kind of like, you know, like make believe scenario that you're kind of a, that you're approaching in your training. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's like it's something you got it. You got you, you have to address and you have to and you have to you know, think about in your training. Like, OK, we're, we're practicing for something that we aren't able to replicate in our practice. Right. Yep. Right. So how do you do that? Well. In my, and this is really following Rory Miller's advice more than anything else, is, you know, first of all, acknowledge the differences, right? Yeah. Identify the flaws, identify the parts of your training that are a break from reality for the interest of safety. Uh -huh. And then, you know, proceed. And in my opinion, too, and this is something I don't remember, I actually got to reread Meditations on Violence because I haven't read and Facing Violence. And, you know, I, I at this point, I read Rory, a couple of Rory's books, like, and there's a bunch of them I haven't read too because I know he's written mm -hmm. a lot but you know that was like more than five years ago that I read those books I should really go back to them yeah but he um, you know, I don't it. know if he if he addressed I'm sure that he did address this to some extent too so you know you I, you understand what to the best of your ability you understand what criminal violence is like you also understand the legal ramifications of the use of violence that's another very important one right you identify where your training break because we can't re you know recreate criminal violence in the class right you try to you have to identify where you're breaking from reality for safety in your training right uh -huh. and then address it as best you can right and i think that is essentially a good that that's essentially the approach that i've adopted however i also supplement it to some extent with the sport aspect of it right yeah yeah because that's when you get to introduce the, the, the resistance back in. You know, like you got to agree to some rules. You got to have some things. I think as long as you acknowledge it, though, mm -hmm. you know, I think it can still be a very good approach to training. For sure. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of the best bosses that I, I've had a litany of great bosses, just in case <laughs> any of them are listening. But <laughs> One of the best bosses that I had was for a day camp that I worked at where we're working on uh, building life skills and doing team building and going outside, like running on a ropes course, high ropes, stuff like that. Yeah. He said, you know, in your desire to help these kids with teamwork and confidence and all these, you know, 
valuable buzzwords. Um, fun is actually a great reason to do something yep. that if, in and of itself will lead to learning in whatever you're doing. So, I mean, that's, that's what it sounds like on some level oh, you're yeah. focusing on with the sport. Sure. Yeah, man, that's a great one from the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and people really underestimate that sometimes. Yeah, First we are karate. We do not smile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, and it's something, man. That actually, at this, it, it kind of drives me crazy at this point. Martial artists that take themselves so seriously. Yeah, like, we're all doing this for fun. <laughs> like, yes. Like, really? I mean, like, listen. I want to know how to fight. I want to know how to defend myself. Of course, those things are important. I don't think you can take the martial out of the art. I don't think you should. Mm-hmm. Right. I do think that you need to have a realistic assessment of what you're doing and you need to keep it, you know, real. However, we all do this because we enjoy it. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like really, you know, and I think sometimes people really underestimate the importance of that. Cause like you're saying, if you don't, first of all, you have to enjoy something to really excel at it for most people. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Maybe I could excel at something I absolutely hate, but I never will because I don't want to. Right. You know what I mean? It's like it's one of those things where people get good at things that they enjoy doing. Yes. And so obviously, like you want it, you want to utilize that. You want to capitalize on that. And it's something that I think that martial artists need to be more open about sometimes that it's like. Tung Sudo is great with this, man. A lot of the time, like the spinning and the jumping kicks and stuff like that. Right. Don't yeah. tell me any of that's for self-defense because it's not. It's ridiculous. You know, it's it's so far removed from that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's fun. Exactly. Like, but there's <laughs> nothing wrong with making that like a very big part of what you do just because you like it. Yeah. You know? Just because it's cool. Like that is nothing wrong with that. That's fine. It really is. You know, it, it's a, for a very big part. Like, honestly, if you're teaching people to defend themselves, like if you want to say that self-defense is the main focus of what you do, you can skip spinning kicks entirely. Yep. Right? It's not that spinning kicks don't work. They do. Right. But it, they have a very limited role to play in a sport environment, you know? Yeah. And outside of that sport environment, it's like the role becomes like exponentially more limited, you know? Yes. Like to the point that you just, it's just not something that is, should be worth the time. But why do I still teach it? Right. Like, cause even to adults, man, like the, the small group of adult students that I have, that I try to make the training a lot more practically based where with the kids, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more, it's a different approach that I have with the kids. People want to learn how to do a spin back kick. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. They just want it's it's fun. It's cool. It's exciting. You know, it's something that when they get when they develop the ability to do it, it's like it's awesome. It's something they're really proud of. And I just don't, you know, I don't. I never want to minimalize that. You know, people will act like you know. I I do karate because I love doing it, man. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's like it's fun. I've been obsessed with it since I was a child. You know, it's like yeah. It is really that's fine. Like that's that's just the way that it is. Um, yeah, you don't need to know how to do a spin kick for self defense, or even really for like, I don't know. To tell you the truth, you probably get kid. Like point fighting is a good example in that. Like, 
having good spins definitely will give you an advantage in point fighting, right? Yeah. But you there a lot of people get by without them. <laughs> you know? Right. It's like you, if by no means, even in point fighting where, 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 where their spinning techniques are more relevant probably than like any other combat sport. Yep. You still can totally get by without them. You know, it, it's like they're by no means necessary. But it's the big, you know, kind of, and yet it's often something you spend a lot of time doing in like a tungsteno class environment. It's, it's, like the, it's not functional, right? Except it's just enjoyable and there's nothing wrong with that. I think, I think my big problem there is when people try to justify the time sink by saying it's valuable for other areas of training where, where it really doesn't have any place. Yeah, yeah. This is if spinning kicks are great. Yep, I agree. They're a lot of fun. Yep, and they're great for self defense. It's like, whoop, mm, nope, <laughs> yeah. they're not. <laughs> but that desire to legitimize it by connecting it to some context that it just has no business being part of is something I run into. I'm sure you do too. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. All the time. I mean, you know. Yeah. And martial, let's be honest, man. Martial artists are often meatheads too. It, it's just True. like, <laughs> if I say spin kicks are for self defense, I mean, now I think things have gotten better too. Because a lot of people will acknowledge and agree with that. But if somebody like really wants to push back on that point, often yeah. they'll be like, just come to my school and spar. I'll show you how relevant they are. And I'm like, you don't get it, dude. Like, you know, it, like self-defense is like you're in a road rage instead, right? You know, you get into yeah, a fender yeah. bender and some dude is screaming in your face and starts pushing you, right? It's like, yep. are you going to step back and spin wheel kick? Is that going to be your go-to move? Hold on. Let me warm up. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's one, and, like the, and I'm sure there are people like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I can't conceive of a situation in which someone would do that and it would work. Right. Right. <laughs> what I would say though, is there's, there's risk to that kind of technique, right? Yep. There's risk to turning your back. There's risk even to being on one foot. You risk, you know, if you don't get the distancing, right, you can get knocked over very easily. Right. right? And there's just other, if you can throw a decent right hook, it has the same effect. Right. And it's much more likely to work. Right. <laughs> So that's yep. always the thing that I, I find, you know, because I at this point, I've done some cross training. I've, I've really expanded my training and stuff. And it does seem a little bit absurd to me, if I'm being perfectly honest, that I learned to be really, really good at spin kicks, but oh. I can't hit with hooks. Like I didn't, I didn't really know what a jab was until mm -hmm. I was an adult, despite the fact I started training when I was nine years old, right? Right. Like, so, and it's just to use one example, you can use a lot of examples from grappling too. But just to use yeah. one example, it's that like basic punching technique, jab, cross, hook, uppercut, right? In my opinion, those techniques are way, way, way more important for practical usage, even for the sport, to tell you the truth. Maybe not point fighting, because point fighting is so long range, you know, kind of like hooks and uppercuts don't come into play right. as much. But, um, certainly for like you know kickboxing or mma or something like that you know it's just kind of backwards right you know mm -hmm. like spin 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 kicking should be something that is a an addition to your skill set that gives you an edge because other people don't have it you know what i mean yep. it shouldn't be something that you develop 
<laughs> to the neglect of more basic skills that are more useful. Yeah. And and again, yeah. and I say all of that from a practical standpoint, as in with like, you know, uh, as, as always, unless you just, or you're just doing it because you really like them. You know what I mean? Yep. Then yep. that's fine. You know, but like you still should maybe acknowledge, you should understand the limitations and about it. But still, I think if you just do that because you like it, that's fine. But, you know, if you're saying that, you know, you really want, you know, to have a practical skill set that enables you to fight and defend yourself. And like, you got to have the base, you should, you got to have your basics down before you move on to, to advanced technique. For sure. Yeah. And that's it, an issue of identifying your goal in that case and having that realistic understanding of what it is. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Totally agree. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah, man, it's one of those things, though. So let's talk a little more Cobra Kai. So sure. I know we talked about it a little bit at my school, but I really love that show because it kind of, um, you know, so for all of the, things you get in martial arts and like i'm not even gonna, it's it, you know it's entertainment it's goofy it's over the top right but with the miyagi dough the like no strike first and all this stuff yeah. I mean, it, it, like it's kind of like pointing towards a lot of this self-defense based stuff that you have right now versus the cobra kai which in my opinion is more of like the sport based stuff or like the hard training you know what in my opinion makes the show cobra kai so so good is that they mm -hmm. really capitalized on I think like poor writing in the original movie, which was that like, if you look at the story, the original story in the Karate Kid, it, you have Daniel LaRusso like showing up, getting trained by some random dude, painting fences and waxing cars. <laughs> yep. right? And then he rolls into the tournament and beats the reigning champ. <laughs> like, yep. It's a very, very like that's 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 not that's that's not realistic at all, right? Mm -hmm. like, in fact, that actually kind of gives like a really, really bad message, a little bit. That's <laughs> like in the original movie, Johnny may have been the bad guy, <laughs> you know, yeah, but he was like a committed karate student, you know, right? Who for years and years who had trained for an extended period of time and mm -hmm. and was at the top and won the tournament, right? Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like lying to the audience to be like, "Oh yeah, Daniel can learn learn some tricks and walk into the tournament and win the thing because he's the good guy." It's like that's not the way it works. Like in reality, Daniel would have gotten his ass kicked in that tournament, right? Like that's the way mm -hmm. it actually works. Doesn't matter if the guy you're fighting against is kind of is is kind of a jerk, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like it doesn't matter. You can't just walk in there without experience. You know, forget training wise it's like he had no competitive experience you and i both have competed enough to know people who are good at tournaments are the ones that go to a lot of tournaments right yes you don't just show up and expect to win your first time you gotta have a little more humility than that even if you're good yep in a lot yep. even if you have a lot of things you're good at a lot of times though you need that specific experience mm -hmm. being in the competition Right. To really excel at it. That's my experience anyway. And, you know, I think the show really kind of capitalizes on that where it says like, hey, hold on a second. <laughs> Cobra Kai wasn't all bad. Right. The hard style of training. Right. Where it's kind of brutal. You fight hard. You train hard. Right. You compete. You know, you 
all you you challenge yourself constantly all mm-hmm. this stuff like that reminds me a lot of tungsten of tungsten i did growing up and yes you know although you don't you know there are limitations to it and we wanted to make considerations for self-defense we want to make considerations for the like kind of wellness aspect of training that should be mm-hmm. good for your health both physically and mentally right good for yeah. your health right yeah these are all things that i do think are important and you should consider and you know has a, and they should be a part of what you do but all that said there's something there is something to be said about just learning to rumble you know yep. and like, <laughs> that's what i got like that's what i think is really cool about the show is they they illustrate that really well where it's like mm-hmm. hey johnny is not just like a a bad guy right yeah he you know maybe you know spent some of his training around like some toxic people that that not a good influence on him yeah but in terms of like as a as for my inner my life myself as a lifelong martial artist i love that cobra kai really highlights that that like there's a part of martial arts training is just getting your ass kicked and mm-hmm. working and working your butt off all the time like and that's and that that's good you know what i mean it's like it's not all this miyagi do type like meditation and peacefulness and all that stuff it's like yes. this would be that aspect to your training maybe but like yeah. you got to get out there and fight you know mm-hmm. even the miyagi do softness and gentleness that's yeah. half the story and in at least in weichi right We've got kote kitai, which we call arm pounding, but if you translate it literally, it's something more like forearm forging. Yeah, this idea of like continually beating yourself until you're tempered steel. Yeah, you know that that struggle gives rise to the greatness, and it, that's sure. the whole purpose of struggle: fighting. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, and it's one of the. So, would you say that? Obviously, there is like a real physical advantage to body conditioning, mm-hmm. you know, that, yeah. but at the same time, would you say that the mental aspect of it maybe is one of the reasons why it's prioritized, right? Because, you know, let's be honest, like MMA fighters don't need to beat up their forearms to be tough, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, in terms of that, like, and that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's not something I've done to the extent that you have. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm sure that, that I that kind of thing strikes me as something that gives you an advantage but probably isn't going to be like crucial but i think yeah sorry go ahead yeah well just the just the physical side of it though because i would suspect though that you know just the mental aspect of it of toughening you up you know not only your it's you're not only toughening your body up you're toughening your mind up through that kind of training right yes for sure i I would say at least in the sport fighting context i think conditioning does have a place um jesse and camp just did that video with wonder boy thompson right yeah and traditional karate stylist who supplemented with mma training he's got makiwara there and he was talking about like maintaining the integrity of your striking surface so sure yeah even boxers break their knuckles and they call it a boxer's fracture but um yeah I, i think in a consensual fight having a conditioned shin might be the difference between you know breaking it and not breaking it and in that sense it's it's really valuable but 
no, there's so much more benefit, especially for the average person from the mental. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that can be overstated. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the conditioning that they do with their shins and tie boxing is crazy. You know, certainly I was just thinking maybe more specifically of the forearm conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because you talk about blocks, right? That's often what we call them in English a lot of the time. Yeah. But you can totally strike with your forearms. For sure. There's you, can the very, you can hit very hard with them. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things that I think sometimes um, this is where I think the art kind of comes into play where there is a there is a functional like you know value to certain training methods and maybe maybe the form conditioning isn't the best example but I think it's something else but we start to practice it often just as kind of an end in and of itself and mm-hmm. i think that has a lot to do with the mental component i mean honestly probably the perfect one for that is something like kata hyung forms mm-hmm. As in, you know, like my the, my approach to that part of my training has changed quite a bit over the years. And that, um, you know, you have the competitive style we both grew up doing, yep. right? Where you're essentially preparing because you're trying to win a tournament, you know? So it's very aesthetic in nature. You know, you're going for a look to your form. You're not really considering how this is actually combatively useful, you know, these mm-hmm these things, these very specific movements that you're developing in your forms. But anyway, you know, I, like now, I, the, my opinion about forms is that they have a use, right? And it gives mm-hmm. us a connect. The biggest thing that they do is they give us a connection to the past. And that's something I think is cool and I appreciate. You know, when I practice Nahachi, my favorite form, mm-hmm. It's like, we don't know how old that is. You know, we don't know. As go back as far, the oldest, you know, photographs that we have of karate, you know, you can find the first Nahachi in, in a fairly, you know, original form, right? It's not too different from the way I originally learned it. You know, there's little differences yeah. here and there in the tongue Sudo, but, you know, like you watch, you know, Motobu is the one mm-hmm. that comes to mind. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we made a book. I believe it was in the 19 early 1930s he published a book that that showed Nahachi in its entirety and it's it's pretty pretty similar to the way that I learned it in you know 2002 or 2003 yeah as a kid I think that's cool you know at the end of the day a lot of people especially the combat sports side of things they'd be like yeah but that doesn't teach you to fight and I would agree with them you know if you just mm-hmm. practice your form over and over again you're not learning how to fight you know you're right. just not I believe we can take the information that are found in the forms and we can take and we can apply the techniques against resistance. And that's when you start to develop something that's combative. Now, people would say, though, yeah, but you could just take those techniques and you throw out the form. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. You know, if you don't care about the history or anything like, that, like I do, if you don't care about that stuff, then maybe you should do that, you know. But at the end of the day, and, and, and I do in terms of just straight like functional use that we have of kata it's like you do learn you if you practice it correctly you are you can you can be developing some good body mechanics right some ability to move from the core the ability to maintain a stable position things like that you know it's exercise right so you can burn you you can get you can get some exercise doing it and something i think is really cool and is often underutilized too is you can also do it 
anywhere. You know, like right. when I train in my school, um, I'll spend time hitting the bag, lifting weights, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like I won't, I don't really spend a lot of time in when, when I have equipment available to me, I don't really spend a lot of time drilling for them. <clears throat> but when I'm at home, right. It's like a normal workout for me. I'll often, I've actually started, I've kind of transitioned where I've started to work out more like twice a day where I'll do like a heavier workout when I'm in the school and kind of a light, almost three times a day, actually extended. Like I'll do like a lighter workout, like in the class I'm running with my students where I'm also teaching, you know, so I'm not really, I get, I get, I get partner work in, in that, in that situation with my students, you know, but it's not like intensive. And sometimes at night afterwards, you know, I'll, um, I'll do another workout at home where I'll just drill some forms and I'll do some calisthenics or maybe some kettlebells because I have those at home. But that's the use that I kind of, that I kind of see of it. It's something, it's a little routine you have with you everywhere you can go. It has old combative information that you can apply against the resistance, but you know, kind of a long tangent, but just the point is that, you know, you can also just ignore all of that and just practice the kata for its own sake, <laughs> just yeah. because just to make it and like, you know, aesthetically pleasing the way that you want it to. And that's, I guess, more strictly speaking, the art side of things. Right. A couple of things that you just said stand out. Yeah. And one of those is the connection to tradition. Like, yeah feeling that you're part of something that's bigger than you are that's carrying you forward in this sort of, you know, uh, flowing uh, stream river where there's evolution, but there's continuity. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, like psychologists say religious people are happier. It's like, why are they happier? Does it matter what religion? No. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're happier because they're part of something bigger than them. And they can... You know, at the end of the day, they can relinquish a little bit of personal responsibility and worry and trust something else. So I think people just naturally want. (laughs) We'll go down a really long tangent. We start talking about (laughs) religion too much, man. But, you know, just to use religion as a very, very rough, you know, kind of analogy for Kata. Is that you have it, it's a connect like wisdom co- sorry religion connects you to the wisdom of your ancestors the wisdom of the past right oh. it's like it's literally and i think i think without it i think more people should appreciate this that it's like it's the oldest part of human culture mm-hmm. is our religion often i mean because yeah. it goes back to very old writings and those writings were often based on a, a far, far older oral tradition, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, and I know that 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 you're that you're a Christian. You know, it's one of those things that uh, have, um, you know, like if you read the story of Cain and Abel, yeah, we have no idea how old that story is. <laughs> it, it it could, without exaggeration, it could be a hundred thousand years old. It could be older because it's mm-hmm. it it was based on oral tradition, and. You know, to use an example from Greek mythology, which I also love, you have, you know, this story of Demeter and Persephone, right? You know, like that's often considered one of the oldest myths in the in the in the Greek and Roman, the classical world. 
the same way. It's like we have no idea how old that story is because it was written down at some point, but it was based on an older oral tradition. Right. right. So I, I think that there's deep, deep wisdom that you get in something like that. Right. And, and this is exactly what I think we're talking about in a martial arts context with kata. You know, like we don't know how old Nahachi, we don't even know what Nahachi means. Like we don't right. know what the name Nahachi means. I've heard some interesting theories, right? But mm-hmm. it's impossible to prove. We probably will never know unless, unless some kind of written record comes to light, unless something comes up that, you know, we don't have, which could happen, of course. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is we don't know how old it is. We have vague references from you know, like 100 years ago, karate teachers saying they came from China. A lot of people have reason to doubt if it actually came from China, right? Because there's, you know, ancient Chinese culture was, cons- it was kind of, it, or, it, it was kind of a rough equivalency you can draw between it and like classical culture. You know, familiar with history, but one of the things I always found really funny is how many people in like European history claim to be descendants of the Trojans. <laughs> because yeah. it's just like, it gave, you know, the, the Iliad was this great, epic work that people knew about and you know gave legitimacy you know ukrainians claiming to be the descendants of the trojans and like all kind you know the romans also i mean they they part of their foundational mythology was that aeneas was a survivor yes. from troy that came yes. that came to rome right everybody wants to connect themselves to the trojans because they're this mysterious civilization from the past right mm-hmm. and i think that some I and I'm not not my a lot of people have brought up this point, but you know it's one that I think is there's a lot of validity to that. Sometimes when you hear references to China with old karate sources, I I I get the impression that it's similar to that, right? Yeah. By by connecting what you do to ancient China, you you're 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 legitimizing it. Yes, but. Yes. So I, you know, whether or not Nahachi comes from ancient China, I don't know, you know, and not even to mention, it could very much be a combination of the two. Maybe there was something that originated in China, but to the extent that, that it was modified in Okinawa, we don't really know. Sure. But the point is, we do things we do know about Nahachi. It is very old, right? Mm-hmm. From the oldest written records that we have, people tended to place a lot of importance on it it was very valued to a lot of the old masters so it's cool you know what i mean like that's something i appreciate and i like about it you know i don't i'm not going to claim that it legitimizes my practice more than others but i think that it's a part of my practice that i like and i appreciate and that's that's enough and not yeah. to mention, you know, some people would argue that, you know, you tend to find what you're looking for when you analyze the forms, which I think is a legitimate point and one that has to be acknowledged. Yeah. But still, the application work that I do with Nahachi, I think, is pretty good. You know, I think that it's pretty it's it's it works against resistance. And I do think that that, that I see a lot of skills that you can extract out of Nahachi that are really, really useful for fighting and self-defense, you know, for sure. Yeah. It does seem like the people who take issue with interpreting forms and uh, you're just reverse engineering. Like you, you don't know sure. for sure. That, yeah. That's true. But we also know, at least from, you know, historical records and from martial arts scholars that 
the kata came about because people didn't have a training partner that night. So it was a way of preserving technique that at least some of what you're doing is probably right. And if it's valuable and it works, then it doesn't necessarily matter if it wasn't the original intent. Yeah, you know, and I think sometimes that's really overlooked because the modern way of practicing kata is you line up in class and you do it all together. Right. Right. When that's not really true, it would make a lot more. That's one of the reasons why I kind of started making it just a part of my home practice. And And I mean, you know, I live in an apartment. There's a lot of forms I don't really have enough space to do. <laughs> in here, <laughs> but the hachi just works pretty well for that. You don't need a lot of space to do the hachi. Yeah. But I think sometimes people underestimate that that we do know from karate history that what was normal prior and, and sometimes even using the term karate isn't really work here because even the term karate is a relatively modern invention. Right? Yeah. Would have been like Todi, right? Is the old yes. old name for the or just Tay. Or just Tay, yeah, even yeah. older, right? But anyway what was normal was it was practiced by a very small number of people. A teacher would have, you know, a handful of students, right? And right. the training groups were very small. Not only that, it was pre-modern times too. You know, like I remember you read about Funakoshi waking up early in the morning and walking, you know, like miles to go to his teacher's home to train there. Yes. Before you had modern methods of transportation, distances between people, I think, was a little bit more, you know, it was a bigger issue. So you needed to have something that you could practice on your own. So the way that I imagine, and of course, this is all reconstructed. I'm not saying it's definitive or, and nobody, I guess, really knows what training was like back then. There definitely are authorities out there that can speak to it better than I can. But to give my best impression that I've pieced together through my own study. Is that you had, you know, you had your kata that you could practice with you wherever you were, right? Maybe you had some simple training equipment like a makiwara or something, right, in your own home. You would go and train with your teacher, right, you know, as, as frequently as you could. And that's when you would be doing some kind of partner work with them, right? Some kind of kumite, some kind of sparring, some kind of application against resistance, but I think that sometimes people underestimate that, you know, this was a method of training that came about because this is this was the necessity of the environment that these people were operating in, you know. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that can be under like, so for instance, like the just to use an example of this, like the use of the Makiwara. I have used the Makiwara before. It's been a while. I do think that there's it has a place in people's training. I do think there's advantages to using it. I don't agree with people that oh, there are people in the karate world that were like only using Makiwara though. Mm, as opposed and, to modern impact equipment. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The, the, the issue that I have with that is that it's like, dude, Makiwara is a really simple tool that can be made in pre-modern Okinawa, right. With the materials right. those people had available to them. Right. It's like, cause you don't have a heavy bag, right. <laughs> they probably could conceivably have produced a heavy bag, but it probably would have been very difficult for them to, I mean, back it's in those times, cloth, cloth was not cheap. Yeah. Cloth yeah. was an expensive, you know, item to have, you know, so 
making these cloth heavy bags that we have today was just something that if it were possible for those people, it just also just wasn't really feasible either. So that's why they, that's why they buried a wooden board in the ground and wrapped it with straw and punched that. Right? Yep. You know? And maybe they used trees. <laughs> you exactly. know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, so yep. and that's, it's a big one from Ian too, that he, one I remember him saying in his seminars was that it was like, you know, I bet if I could go back in time to Okinawa and I had a bag full of focus mitts, and I showed these old, old karate practitioners or toady practitioners focus mitts and how you could use them. It's like, I bet they would have been all about it, you know? Yeah. The point is, they didn't have high-density foam and, you know, like, they didn't have the ability to make the equipment that we have today. Right. I think that it is similar to some extent with kata, as in, like, you know, it, it, when you're pra- – and I, 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 I love kata. I'll always practice it. I will always teach it. I have de-emphasized it though. I don't practice it as much as I used to. Just the solo, the solo movements by themselves. Yeah. So, and you, you attended a class with me a little bit today. I do it more with the younger kids, to tell you the truth, because they're learning yep. discipline and focus and body control. Right. With the adults, it's like a ten-minute part of the class. You know, like we spend like ten minutes usually early on in the class. You know, reviewing reviewing the forms, and mm-hmm. then. Whereas, like when I was growing up, I mean, there were some classes we would just do forms. Like that was a pretty common class. We would just drill, we drill the form, and then we take pieces of the form and drill those over and over again. And we do it over and over and over and over again. In my yep. opinion, this is an example of a very old training method that was created out of necessity. And was with people who had kind of limited means as to what they could do. Mm-hmm. And we've taken that and we've kind of applied it in a very different context. And I'm not sure that that's really optimal a lot of the time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Seems like the, uh, the regimented sort of orderly Japanese approach to the teaching there is reflected. Yeah. Whereas... The Okinawans, like Chip Sensei is fond of saying, they were a lot less formal. Yeah. And it was the skill work and, you know, you were working with a partner and most of that was the purpose. Yeah. No, I'm told even today in Okinawa, it's, the, the, it's not as regimented Okinawan karate. Yeah, it's, it's not. I mean, they're they're disciplined and they like... They like rules to some degree, broad generalization, but, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Japanese make them look very relaxed. Yeah. From what I, I, you know, that's what I like to trade, to tell you the truth. Yep. Yeah. You know, from what I, I remember reading, I think about it, it's pretty common in Okinawa where like there's kind of just hours the school is open and you just kind of show up. And yeah. you start practicing and there is a teacher there who will like come around and maybe give you some corrections or try something with you. But it's not like a formal class like like we would think of, like line up, bow in, bow out. Yes, sir. No, sir. Like all of this, you know, like military culture, honestly. Right. It's not commoditized in the same way a lot of the time, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, there, and that's why there's something to be said that a lot of these changes, you know, kind of came at a very specific time in Japanese history. Japan was in, it was a militaristic, you know, imperial society. Right. You know, and 
this military culture kind of became a part of karate and you know i would argue sometimes how much it really serves our training and again i always say that you know one of the funny things is that it was because it was a lot of young people that were starting to do karate at that time right and i find that the young the young kids in my school are the ones that i think that kind of benefit from that stuff the most yes whereas with, <laughs> with adults it's kind of like you know, honestly, man, I haven't done a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've dabbled in it over the years a good bit, but um, I kind of learned a lot from that environment as well. Where it's that's what's kind of common in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, where it's very informal, laid-back kind of training environment. You know, yeah. And um, I just found that like that's the way that I kind of want to operate with older teenagers and adults. Is that it's just very laid-back. We we kind of keep it. And you were you were in my school just the other day. I kind of keep it to a quick bow, you know, at the beginning yep. of class, and that's pretty much where the formalities end. Right. That does move away from the Korean culture a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, tell you the truth, man. I don't really understand Korean culture. You know, yeah. I question sometimes. Like this is my whole thing about the Frankenstein of Christ times. Is that like, is it Korean culture? Like, I don't know. Like, it, 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 it's the way that I learned it in America with a bunch of American dudes, you know? Yeah, yeah like, fair. I'm not sure how much anyone that I really knew growing up really understood Korean culture and the larger, like, and that that's something, I, of course, I'm not just only trying to pick on Tung Sudo here. I think it's true of martial <laughs> arts in general. Yeah. So sometimes we kind of take little pieces of these cultures and are applying them out of context. And, you know, it was something Ian Abernethy does a lot too. You know, I just don't think there's anything wrong with practicing like a Asian martial art in a Western country and just using Western cultural norms, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I expect respect from my students, from my teens or adults, but respect in a Western context, right? You know what I mean? Like you don't need to say, yes, sir, no, sir, and stand at, at, at your side. Like I've never been in the military, right? I understand some people appreciate that, especially a lot of ex-military people, right? That's right. something they really dig about martial arts. My school just may not be the best place for them, to tell you the truth, because I just, I never did that, right? Like yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to dismiss it entirely. I'm just saying that for me, I don't, see the need for it you know and i don't know you know and that's that's where like things like terms like cultural appropriation kind of get thrown around sometimes you know what i mean like for me cultural appropriation isn't um like wearing a goddamn halloween costume you know right cultural appropriation is more like misunderstanding a culture and like being a oblivious to it you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like it's not, so as i feel weird even with the korean terminology man because i'm like i had a i had a mom once who was from korea and i asked yeah. her I was like do you recognize any of the terms i'm using right now and she was like <laughs> like, like she could not understand a word i was saying and, um, that was kind of a little bit of an eye-opener did you did you push further to see if that was pronunciation and inflection or if that was specific martial arts vocabulary i got the impression it was a combination of two because like honestly man i mean like and and i'm from i'm from a medium-sized group you know what i mean like you know amcor karate we have 
six schools in the Philadelphia area, but I don't think that there are any native Korean speakers in our entire community. Right. So I think these kinds of things are a little bit unavoidable is that when you have no one who actually speaks the language, you know, for, and, 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 you know, there are a lot of people in the West might have like a familiarity with it, but are they really fluent? Like, you know, when there's nobody in the community, it's like a, a fluent speaker. I just feel like it, um, it's inevitable that you're going to lose a lot of things. You know what I mean? Yes. And you're going to change a lot of other things too. Yeah. So a part of me kind of feels like, and I think everybody's got to do whatever is good for them. Some people might really like it. And they were having those, the, the Asian terminology and the military etiquette is a very important part of their practice. And I don't like judge them for that. That's fine. You know, Yeah. for me, it's more so though. I feel like, well, you know, if, if, if I'm so removed from the culture, right, and we just have this piece of it here, like, why don't we just do, why don't we just use Western norms here? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I feel like that works better for me as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even then, you're still, I'd, I'd call you like a midpoint. Like, you, you, you aren't inviting the kids to call you by your first name. Sure. Well, yeah, because it's kind of like... A, like a teacher at school right you know you want to call right. a teacher at school by their first name that that i'd say is going out of style though you know really that that level of eh, maybe maybe not in the schools but there's a lot of compromise there like calling someone mr or Ms. and then their first name you give yeah, them that's a term true. of respect but you're you're moving closer to them in a more intimate's not the right word on a on a almost like a peer to peer level. Yeah. Which you gotta be careful with, you know, cause as you know, we talked about this a little bit in my school. I do just really like, you know, being around kids, you know, I, I, it's fun for me. You know what I mean? I was a big brother growing up. I got a lot of younger siblings from a family of six siblings. I'm the second oldest. And, you know, like I try to capitalize on that, you know, like it should be fun to come to the karate school. So I'll joke around with my students and stuff. And I think that's a good thing good thing to do but it's important that you that you have those boundaries there that it's just like i'm i'm in a position of authority here and that's for their own good you know what i mean and try to remind myself of that more often but yeah like you're saying though it's like i expect the young kids to call me mr marino right and then when they start to be like older teenagers is when i'll start telling them just call me dan you know yeah yeah that's something that they earn over time with you though as the relationship deepens that that seems different sure you know? yeah. So, yeah well you're a teacher too so you probably saw it Sim similar the way that you do it in an academic setting yeah we uh we go by mr or ms mrs and our last name yeah 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 that's the way i did growing up so i think we do it yeah. but anyway man uh thank i we're, we're getting close to 90 minutes here so it's been really nice talking to you um thanks for coming on the show real quick before we go though i know you have a sure. youtube channel what's the easiest yeah. way for people to find you people can uh they can search mr mr andrew o'brien uh it's the same on instagram as well mm -hmm. uh, you know Ms., you know andrew o'brien and karate i should come up if you google me or any of that stuff so. I'll include in the show notes. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks. 
All right, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, always nice talking to you. Always nice getting together, training with you when we can. I know we live quite a ways apart, but um, yeah, it was really it's really interesting hearing about your experiences with it too. To tell you the truth, and we talked about this a little bit before, Okinawan karate is kind of always something that um, I've always I've always wanted. If if I were to cross train a little bit, because like I talked about with my teacher doing Shotokan, yep. it's interesting that um. It's different than Tung Sudo, but also very similar. You know what I mean? And then I always thought it would be cool to to cross-train in like a Okinawan style the same way. So it was really cool hearing about your experiences and you talking about some of the technical differences and what you do. But um, it's cool to get that range of practice, right? For sure. Yeah, different. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to share, Dan. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for more and more training and Anytime you're in the Boston area, come on up and train with us. For sure, man. Sometime soon, I'll make a trip back up there. Yeah, Sounds I'll definitely hit you guys up. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. I'll talk to you later. Hey, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. So one more time, that was my friend Andrew O'Brien. If you're interested in seeing his stuff, you know, probably the easiest way to find him is if you just search Andrew O'Brien Karate on YouTube. But he's got a good YouTube channel, a lot of good stuff on there. I suggest it very highly. And um, thanks a lot for listening again. We'll be back with more soon.